I think it's really important when chips are down and times are tough to be incredibly empathetic, to be a really great listener, to be pragmatic and bold, to tackle problems assertively and responsibly. Emily Abadi here bringing you episode 145 of Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I sit down with inspiring individuals to talk about everything from their big wins to how they've gotten through some of life's toughest moments. On the show, you can expect vulnerability, motivation, and candid discussions with everyone from top athletes to aspiring entrepreneurs on what it really takes to follow your passions. My mission is simple, to inspire you to be your best self, move with intention, and have some fun along the way. For today's episode, I am so excited to be chatting with Nick Stone. He is the founder and CEO of Blue Stone Lane, an Australian-inspired chain of cafes well-known for their unbelievable coffee, but they also serve, oh my God, so much delicious stuff. Everything from avocado toast and apple crumble porridge to warm chicken and greens bowls, chicken and bacon club sandwiches, green baked eggs. I mean, the list goes on. This stuff is so good and so, so fresh. Today, we chat about a lot of things. We cover a lot of bases. Nick tells me about his backstory at one point being an Australian football league player before transitioning to banking and finance and then ultimately into the hospitality business. We talk about where his head was at when opening his first cafe, which was conveniently located next to his full-time job at the time in Midtown Manhattan. And we also chat about, man, how this year has been for Bluestone Lane in the wake of the pandemic. At one point, the pandemic eliminating 90% of the company's revenue and having to let go hundreds of workers. Nick talks to me about how they navigated that, how he truly believes that no matter how hard it gets, there is a place for positivity and optimism. And he fills me in on his guiding principles as a founder, as a leader, and how he stays true to his values and his purpose, even in the hardest of times. I myself, huge fan of the brand, so it was really fun for me to have this conversation. There's one conveniently located like maybe five blocks from where I live on the Upper East Side. It is a staple in my routine with like about a mile left on my morning run to open the Bluestone Lane app and order myself a coffee with almond milk and grabbing it and walking that last little stretch home and just taking some me time. So thanks to Nick and the team at Bluestone uh, for bringing me some joy on the regular. And I know so many others get that same joy when they come to see you guys as well. Before we get into the swing of things today, I do want to take a moment to thank my sponsor at Athletic Greens. I recently opened up on social media about how I have been struggling a little bit. I feel as though the stress is definitely getting to me. It's making me feel a little wonky in my own body, but I know that one thing that helps me get back on track every single day is shaking up my bottle of Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is a greens powder that's got 75 whole food sourced ingredients as well as prebiotics, probiotics, adaptogens, and superfoods. For me, Athletic Greens, that sweet sip first thing in the morning right before I get to work at my desk, it's not only my nutritional insurance, it's my immunity support. And by incorporating it into my routine regularly, this is me giving back to me, starting things off on the right foot, and just taking care of my body. Head on over to athleticgreens.com slash hurdle. And with your first purchase, you'll get some great freebies. I'm talking five free travel packs as well as a year's supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash hurdle. Get five free travel packs and a year's supply of vitamin D with your first purchase today. No code necessary. As always, as you're listening today, make sure to tag the show over on social media. It's at Hurdle Podcast. I'm over at Emily Abadi. And with that, let's get to hurdling. Today, I'm sitting down with Nick Stone. He is the founder and CEO of Bluestone Lane. How are you doing today, Nick? Very well, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. 
Pleasure to of be on. Of course. Of course. I'm amped. I I ride by many a blue stone or run by, depending on the day, uh, around New York City. So it's uh it's exciting to get to chat with the man behind the cafes. Yeah, yeah, that's uh that's us. We're uh, it's been an interesting journey, that's for sure, both uh, with the business and me me uh professionally. But uh happy to chat chat with you today and and talk uh, in whatever direction you'd like to take us. Obviously a lot about <laughs> wellness, health and uh and you know, lifestyle. And lifestyle. So before we get going, uh talk to me about what Bluestone Lane is. I know that you founded the company in 2013. That's right. Uh, Bluestone Lane is an Australian influence premium coffee, healthy food, uh, and hospitality brand. Uh, we we're inspired by the hometown where I'm originally from, Melbourne, Australia. And when I arrived in the states in 2010, I was just quite shocked by how different the coffee culture is. Uh, not necessarily uh, exclusively about how different the, the product was, both coffee and and the the food program but in australia it's a land of independence it's very much based around this owner operator model where you have very sincere and deep meaningful relationships with your customers and in fact customers it's quite a generic term and and it's not common in australia they they refer to it in in the cafe scene as locals and and that's because the relationship is more reciprocal it's more personalized it's it's deeper and uh, for myself, when I moved to the States, I just couldn't believe that so many of these larger chain establishments had focused on convenience and speed in a very homogenized and transactional way. And the big chains didn't, they don't exist in Australia. In, in fact, Starbucks uh, failed. Uh, but there's no Duncan, there's no Pete's Coffee, there's no Tim Hortons in Australia. The the, the cafe scene uh, more premium and, uh, and certainly more independent and uh, and, and more curated. So I just thought there's such a wonderful opportunity to provide this human connection, this escape, this sense of belonging, um, this this way to break isolation that often people feel in big cities. And uh, that really inspired the, the purpose of the brand um, in addition to sort of educating people around the, the, the beauty of premium coffee and, and healthy food, not just sort of uh, generic coffee and processed food. And it's been a great journey. And uh, since that time in 2013, we, we've opened over 50 locations across eight markets and it's been a steady growth period. And we've encountered uh, a lot of challenges, but none bigger than the one we've got right now dealing with COVID and how restrictive it's been on the business. But uh, it's been real thrill. So much to unpack here. The first thing to unpack, uh, Starbucks failed in Australia. Yeah, they did. They did. There's only a couple of markets really that Starbucks hasn't hasn't succeeded in. Australia is one of them. Uh, Italy so interesting. Is a, Italy's another, and Israel. So, I, really, Australian coffee culture uh, is centered around espresso. So, drip is not a big part of of the landscape, and it really started the espresso coffee movement started in Australia in the 40s, pre and post World War II, and we switched from primarily a tea drinking culture which was based on obviously a uh, british colonial sort of influence and uh, went into espresso coffee in the 40s when we had mass migration from europe italians greeks the second largest population of a critical mass of sort of greeks outside of athens is actually melbourne so um they brought their espresso machines and then we had this abundance of of natural produce australia and new zealand are the premium food bowl for for asia and uh, asia pacific region and I think the the third element was this real notion of of that European style coffee shops where it's very much based around the proprietor that they know all of their locals and it, it's very but you know it's daytime it's alfresco it's it's very social that social ritual of connecting over coffee and and having a break a pause a moment a moment to uh, to bond and um, you know that's really shaped the coffee culture where everything sort of so much business and so much socialization is it takes place around you know great coffee and healthy food and i just thought there's such a wonderful opportunity here and particularly this younger demographic millennials that were looking for more artisan experiences and they're looking for better quality uh food and, and coffee and and anything they're putting in their bodies and and i think they're really focused on socializing more during the day less about alcohol um less about late nights and and you know more serious sort of um hospitality events and 
and I, I, I think we got it right and that, and that trend continues. And, um, you know, it's really, really important that we've, we've built this brand and team ethos uh, based around making people feel connected and welcomed. And we often use the term that we're, we're more a human connection company than a hospitality company. I dig that. And I think that definitely speaks to to your values and again, where you come from. Now, obviously, you didn't, uh, you haven't been in the coffee business forever. In fact, you were uh, doing a lot of different things before you got into the hospitality industry. So talk me back, bring me back. You said growing up in your hometown in Australia, what was life like for you? Were you an active kid? Very much so. Yeah, I I, I spent as much time as I could outside playing sports, playing with my friends. Uh, I, I tried all different types of sports and, and, and love competing, love being part of teams. So whether that's, uh, I played professional Australian rules football, I played a lot of cricket, I played a lot of high level water polo, um, I played tennis, golf, uh, I absolutely love skiing, uh, running outside, I, I like surfing. There's just, that's the Australian lifestyle. We're an island, so everyone lives on the coast. Ninety-eight percent of the population live on the coast, so access to water and access to outdoors is quite extraordinary. The landmass of Australia is, is quite similar to the US, but we only have twenty-four million people, so we have less people than the, the whole state of Texas. So there's just a lot of outdoors to explore, and um, Australia is a very sort of, I'd say, competitive and sports crazed nation. I think we're we're a land of immigrants. Um, uh, but and that's that's no disrespect to the First Nations people. Um, but you know, a lot of people uh, were, were not originally born here in Australia, or, or their ancestors weren't weren't born here in Australia. So there's there's been mass waves of migration. So it's a very multicultural and cosmopolitan sort of country, I would say, uh, particularly the way it's evolved over the last uh, twenty years. And uh, yeah, I, I just love the outdoors and um, that, and certainly playing football in in particular was just a huge part of my life and uh you know that's and you know that's shaped who i am playing as part of teams and being part of high performance teams which influenced my careers outside of sport which have been in banking and and now in in hospitality and you're right like bluestone is my first hospitality experience i never i never worked a day in a coffee shop or in a bar or or uh, in a restaurant so um it's certainly been you know a scrappy and and rapid uh, learning process, but it's been a wonderful one. And uh, I think there's been some real benefits, the fact that I didn't have a lot of rules and uh, preconceptions that I could challenge a lot of the norms and really orientated around that that real deep customer centricity of what what I valued as a customer and what, what people I know value as customers and shape the value proposition to, to meet that. So interesting, really, because you, as you mentioned, made some very drastic career shifts. And I think often individuals who might be doing something that they don't love are scared to follow suit to do a similar thing because they're scared from starting from square one. So I know the first career transition you made, you mentioned uh, playing football, you you transitioned from playing football to going into finance. Is that right? That's, That's correct. That's correct. I went from I was drafted uh, in my final year of high school. I was seventeen, and I played six seasons in the Australian Football League professionally. And luckily, I well, luckily, or uh, I think just it was it was a good decision to go to university at the same time. So when I when I got delisted from my last club, uh, which is basically your contract not re- renewed, uh, I had this pathway into banking and finance, um, investment banking. And I was really, really interested about that next chapter because it was going to provide an opportunity to potentially work overseas and learn, work with companies and, and the interesting things they're doing and understand you know, how they built their business and their brand and their culture. And I, I just was in, um, enthralled by this, this opportunity to, to, have a, a wider lens and to work internationally and have a broader perspective so that that even though you know football was is a very intense thing you know competing professional I'm, I'm really glad that i continued to persist in my studies so the transition was was possible and and i also had kept a very very pragmatic approach to to a prof- to a sporting career that even if you have an amazing career and you play 10 years or so 
uh, you know, it's, it should be just a, a chapter in your book on life. You know, uh, imagine if you finished it. I always think about I, I play till I'm 30. That's an amazing career. But then what, what do I do for the next, like, hopefully 60 years? And uh, I just thought that, you know, by not having utility, not having excitement outside of that would be such a shame and it'd make it really hard to transition. So at <laughs> a very broad perspective and went from banking where I worked in 11 years in, in, um, in, in two cities in Australia and then, you know, I worked a bit in London and then obviously in New York. And then into uh, basically my, my first small business experience. And in this case, it was in I was in hospitality and building this this sort of retail lifestyle brand. So the next logical question then would be, and I mean, we're, we're covering such a long period of time here, but yeah. what was going on in your finance career that even inspired or motivated you to make such a pivot? Well, when I was, it, it started, there's sort of two reasons. The first one was when I was working in finance, we in in Australia, we used to leave the office twice a day as a team. It was a really great social bonding ritual because we would work very long hours. In some cases, you you, you may think that you're going home at 6 or 7 p.m. and in fact, you work all night through. And the, the getting coffee as a team is just a great way to disconnect and um, socialize and just take a breather and, and, and get yourself re-energized for whatever you're tackling in the office. And um, so that was the was such a big part of the the reason for set, for establishing Bluestone Lane. It was out of this self necessity that I felt like we needed these places where you walk in and you feel special, that you're a local, not a customer, to be your best. And and then so that's what, what that's how we sort of that's why I sort of founded it and shaped it uh, that way. And the first one was the first door actually was a very short walk, a walk from where I was working on Park Avenue, uh, 277 Park Avenue. So really only like five minutes away from the first Bluestone Lane. So that's <laughs> customer centricity um, was certainly paramount. But, uh, you know, I, I think the reason I made a jump was I, I just thought uh, we – I've got this opportunity. I, I can always probably go back to banking, but this opportunity to try and build something bigger and have a greater impact and, and influence on how people feel and their education around uh, healthy eating and, and great coffee, it's, it's this window that I think I should go for it. And it was, it was not an easy decision. I, I ran the company for three years while still working full-time in banking. And then I finally made the jump. So I had I'd done my homework and I'd, I'd sort of done a lot of self-reflection on am I ready to jump into a small business? Um, am I, have I understood you know, how we're going to grow and how I'm going to be productive and helpful? Because certainly it, I think in the early stage when we, were, you know, we opened our first two stores in 2013, there wasn't really that much for me to do on a on a full-time basis we we were very small business and in fact i think if i went left banking and went full-time it could have been a um it could have been detrimental because i could have pushed the business too hard and um, pushed people too hard with with whatever ambitions i had or just the fact that i, I like to improve every day and yeah I, it had to you had to get that balance right and and uh, the timing eventually to move in mid 2016 made sense and uh it's 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 worked out well um and you know certainly not been without a lot of challenge but it's been incredibly rewarding and i've learned so much about um, working with people from a whole variety of different um walks of life and background which is which you get a lot more in, in small business and hospitality than say necessarily banking which which is a little bit um, uniform in how they recruit and the type of sort of academic profile and experience. So it, it certainly taught me a lot about um, being a more effective communicator and leader. And, um, you know, I, I think just just being a, in some cases just a, a more empathetic person, an understanding person. You mentioned that you stayed on with your other full-time job while basically undertaking a second full-time job for three years. I mean, people talk about having a side hustle all the time. I would say that you didn't just have a side hustle. Again, you had a second job. How did you like stay sane, especially when you're starting a, a job in a field that you know very little about? 
I, I had a certainly incredible support network being the being my my wife alexandra she she was incredible and i think also we we had this unbridled enthusiasm and we we were we were pretty unencumbered living in new york both we're both from australia both from melbourne australia we didn't have any family we didn't have children uh we were we were sort of it was the perfect time to to really push it hard and we were living in new york city everyone's trying to make it and, and working really you know in putting in a tremendous amount of effort so i think the environment um supported it i had an incredible support network in my in my wife and you know i it didn't really feel like work it felt like this i was i was building something and it was like a competition and it was like uh, an adventure and i think you just get just get caught up in in the it's quite intoxicating when you start having success and you're working with amazing people and you're learning and and you're being inspired and also retail gives you that wonderful benefit that if you do something well often people will will fraternize and visit or patronize your uh, your establishment and they'll tell you straight away and and that that's that feedback's pretty incredible i don't know if i could have juggled two businesses at once if I wasn't getting that validation in a very frequent way. Yeah, it wasn't easy, but you know, I, I do think that there's there's a lot to be said by keeping keeping your job going and income and not having, you know, that huge distraction when people sort of jump into a startup when it may be not fully thought about or all the research hasn't been done and putting a lot of pressure on yourself. Like what you know, wow, like I, I don't really have any money or I'm not paying myself. I've got all this stress. So how do I pay the rent? How do I afford to pay my health insurance or to go on a holiday or what have you? And and I just I sort of hedged my bets a bit more and I was I was just fortunate in that regard. You mentioned having a lot of stressors just there. I mean I think especially this year, so many of us are constantly feeling just so overwhelmed and like there are so many things that we can attribute it to. When it came to starting your business and balancing both jobs and also trying to maintain some a sort of a personal life, I'm sure, in addition to your own mental health, how did you not get overwhelmed? It's certainly been a sensory overload, that's for sure. <laughs> 20, 2020, uh, you know, it's hard to hard to ever in your wildest dreams, um, uh, you know, predict that this would would happen. The culmination of historic events in one year, but you know, I think I haven't been. Uh, you know, there's been at times where I have felt overwhelmed, and I and I do think that it's actually natural. Uh, maybe in the years gone by, I would have seen being overwhelmed as a sign of weakness and inferiority. But uh, there's times this year that I did, uh, I have, and I still occasionally now just feel hopeless that uh, nothing's working and that that, uh, that I've failed. And uh, you know, it's a, you know you get down. But I'm very fortunate that I know that I have people that are my positive energizers and I know there are things that I can do that gets me out of my mental um, mental challenge and reframes the way I feel. And, um, and, you know, that's held me in great stead for years and it's now just making sure that I uh, go to them in a very proactive way. So those positive energizers, my wife, my my family, um, my best friends, my best school friends that are a bit detached from everything that's going on here has helped me tremendously. And, and you know, they don't really want to talk about Bluestone. They don't want to talk about, you know, what what's going on, you know, financially or any hardships. They just want to talk about... Uh, you know, time when we can all get together and funny things that are happening and what's going on in the the footy world or what have you, and it's just so refreshing to 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 connect with people you love so dearly and that just wanna they just wanna lighten things up a bit and just have a bit of banter and fun and and really um you know that the huge part of Bluestone's purpose is exactly that it's to make people 
disconnect from whatever's been going on in their personal and professional life or the, the broader environment and to come into our store and, and feel rejuvenated and just like let it go. Just just be feel recognized and special and personalized and, and feel like a real local. And that that is the purpose of the company. It's never been more more important. And you know, I think that you know it's that. And then and the other thing I do is you know, I if I exercise, if I go for a run, if I do some weights, if I jump on the bike, if I do something to get myself moving. And if I listen to music at the same time, I listen to podcasts or what have you, uh, it's just the endorphins go. You just suddenly feel lighter and clearer and happy. And it's just the most magical thing moving. And I know some people get it through meditation and sort of other, other means. My wife gets it. It's, she finds painting and drawing very therapeutic because she, she's an, a very talented artist. But if for me, I, you know, I I can just default to to doing sport, you know, getting in the water, going to the beach, going for a run. It's just it's just quite incredible, and I I do think that having those rituals is so important. And even though there's a lot of distractions and there's a it's and there's so much connectivity with our phones and social media, which I do think is a is a real negative externality for, for society to sort of grapple with. I, I, you got to find the way, this ritual in which you can get yourself in a better spot. And um, that's, that's what I've been trying to stick to. Taking a break from today's episode to give some love to my sponsor, Beam. If you have been in the Hurdle community for a while, then you have heard me talk about Beam before. Beam's a Boston-based CBD company that is making waves in the wellness industry by offering products that combine THC-free CBD with other high-quality ingredients. Now, whether you are sore or stressed, CBD is key for recovery and self-care. Lately, as I've been doing a little rehab on my right knee, dealing with what I think is a little tendonitis, I have been leaning into their Boost Topical, which helps to boost athletic recovery, ease inflammation, and soothe sore muscles. If you're more in the market to get better quality sleep, then I cannot recommend their Beam Dream Blend enough. It tastes like a cinnamon hot chocolate, and in addition to the nano CBD powder that's in there, it's also got melatonin and a bunch of different adaptogens to help you get a great night's rest. Head on over to beamtlc.com and use the promo code HURDLE for 15% off any Beam product. Again, that is beamtlc.com, B-E-A-M-T-L-C.com. Use promo code HURDLE at checkout for 15% off today. You mentioned in the opening of your first cafe, not all that far from your office. I mean, we're talking midtown Manhattan here. I can't imagine that this was an inexpensive venture to to get into. So how did you and where did you you find the money for that first store? And I mean, I'm sure that came with its fair amount of uh, anxiousness as well. Basically, we the the seed round we did, we raised three hundred fifty thousand dollars. I put in um, just over half of it, and then just a couple of friends really um, backed it. And two of them, one was uh, my former boss, and one was my coworker who sat next to me. And then um, a, another two mates who and their wives who were Australians living in New York that that actually missed Australian coffee culture as well. So. It started in very scrappy way, you know, three hundred and fifty thousand dollars for two stores. It it wasn't like a big million dollar seed raise, or in the case right now, like a ten million dollar seed raid, um, seed raise. So we were we were we were resourceful and scrappy, and I think that was a great way to go about it. Be really capital efficient and focus on what you should invest in and what you can sort of um, decorate and use use creativity rather than just buying the most expensive um ffna or materials yeah there's there's lots of different ways you can do things and again i wasn't from the industry so i could really 
acutely value what's what's going to be important from this customer experience and over invest in certain areas and then just be very resourceful in others. You have such a stress now these days you talk about uh, community and how important that is for you guys. I mean, I can't imagine that that first location that you had in Midtown was big enough to do a lot of fostering of that. No. Well, you'd be surprised. So we were, it was a tiny space. It was about, it's about 250, 300 square feet. And um, it is, it's located in a subterranean part of the building, 805 Third Avenue, below an escalator that was constantly broken. And, uh, you know, it was very elusive. And and I think that was part of its charm because the only way to find it because it had no street visibility or no signage was you needed someone to take you there. So when when someone took you there, you're going to have this social connection. You were going to go with a friend, and then behind it was this food court. It was it wasn't a particularly attractive, more sterile corporate, you know, seventies um, food court. But it was a chance, at least, for people to sit down and enjoy enjoy coffee and an avocado toast and just to connect but but what was magical about it was our our team was so focused on service and having this local relationship this personalized relationship not a not a generic customer transaction relationship the people feel just felt just great going down there and that's what that's what I was looking for because when we left our office building in Melbourne to go to one of the you know one of the hundred incredible cafes that that um, surround the building, it's just really the notion of going in there and being welcomed and feeling great, and then you know getting a coffee and going back. It's the journey to to the coffee shop that's part of the experience. So it, it didn't have to be this sit down for 30, 45 an hour um, coffee date. It could just be a 10-minute break that gives you that recharge and uh, that, that sense of socialization that, that makes you feel special. And that's what I was focused on with Bluestone. It didn't have to be, it didn't have to be something that was really formalized. It just should be you know, informal but premium um, uh, yet you know, really personalized. And that's what I think we've been very successful in, in doing. When did you know that it was going to be more than just those two first stores? Well, the first store was was pretty incredible because the first day I think we served 300 people, right? So it was a huge queue around the block and we really put uh, the, you know, an authentically made flat white and avocado toast on the map, right? We launched it in mid-2013. It's not that long ago, right? So three, seven years ago, but... Back then, no one was eating avocado toast. It wasn't like a universally known, um, you know, staple that it is now. I and... don't even remember a life without like everyone eating <laughs> <laughs> avocado toast anymore. Yeah, well, it just didn't. You couldn't find it anywhere back then. You know, I think there was one place that had it, which was like Cafe Jatan, which which I love, and it, it was more French Moroccan style version of it, but. Um, hmm. It, there was a couple of Halo products that just exploded, you know, Flat White and, and Avo, Avo Smash. And I so the, that store was busy, but it was really store number three. We opened the broader concept, which is our cafe concept, which is more like a restaurant, daytime restaurant. We opened it in uh, West Village at 55 Greenwich Avenue, the corner of Perry and Greenwich Avenue. And, uh, you know, we didn't have really much money at all. So we scrapped this one together. We didn't even have proper air conditioning and it was an old building, but um, it just exploded. And, uh, you know, it was it was sort of um, creative chaos there for a number of years. But it, it, I think we realized it was pretty special because just the, the, the bars about it. And we, I think we were real catalyst to activating that entire street and just the the wait times on weekends were over an hour and and you'd see people who are pretty well known and famous like queuing and uh, that was our policy that that irrespective of your background or your socioeconomic status or your celebrity status like everyone had to had to you know follow the same same process and wait in line and there was no skipping the queue and uh i love that i love that um how democratized we were and uh, you know committed to to making sure everyone has a great time and you know I, you, when suddenly the big 
name sort of celebrities like Taylor Swift comes back two days in a row and then, you know, Cameron Diaz is in there and then, you know, um, James Franco's in there every day. Then someone like Malcolm Gladwell's in there every day. You, you sort of realize, wow, these are pretty worldly, well-traveled people that, that probably visit a lot of places around the world. And if they're coming to hang out at Bluestone Lane, then we've probably got something that's pretty magical here. And, <laughs> you know, I, I, and, you know, that celebrity doesn't validate your proposition, but I, you know, it was an indication that, that, um, you know, it was, it was, of interest to a lot of people and we didn't we've never marketed bluestone like we never spend any money on advertising or or you know we really don't spend any money on paid advertising on social at all it, it's all through word of mouth and that's the way we like it we want it to be genuine and it's the most powerful way of marketing which is just people telling other people you've got to go and and we're fortunate that our core customer loves uh and and our product and our stores are very photogenic so a lot of the content's created for us and projected through primarily uh, instagram and and it was serendipitous timing that instagram had really just started to take off in 2013 2014 so it just timed it really nicely with what we were doing and letting people know and yeah, it's that was a that was a real moment where, where I think we stood back and said, "Wow, we can we can do something that's really cool here, that's very different." And I still feel that way now. I, I still feel like very few people can do at scale what we're doing. Definitely, and it's interesting to me. I mean, you talked about starting it with such few offerings and then expanding into that cafe on Greenwich, and it's crazy. I mean, how did you even start to come up with the other things that you wanted to offer in the cafe outside of those original starters? Yeah, so the first two were, were what I'd call sort of kiosk coffee shops, really orientated around coffee and pastry, toasts, just just smaller items to go uh, where the the cafe proposition is a lot broader uh, table service and you know a lot have not only just the full coffee and tea program but they have you know the juice wellness powders alcohol it's just a lot broader um you know what where we had such an advantage was i was everything was influenced by by the, the australian cafe culture so in determining what you want to put on your menu and how you want to serve it and plate it, we were taking constant inspiration by the best cafes in Australia and, and I still am to this day. And what we are trying to be is a very, very authentic representation of Australian premium cafe culture. And, and that will never change. So we're very fortunate in that regard. We, we I would, was able to uh, you know, go home frequently to the mecca of premium cafe culture and and be inspired and and try and uh, take some of that magic and scale it in our business. And you know, I had I've got some good relationships there. And you know, I just again, it was all through that customer centricity. I, I would I would dine and think about, wow, I'd, I'd love to eat that or or try it that way. Or can we plate it this way? The store doesn't look sort of you know, as intimate here, can we change those colors? Can we change the the textures? And, you know, I think it was just through that like obsessive attention to detail, which is probably one of my strengths. Um, and, you know, it's very important in retail. They always say, you know, retail is uh, detail. And, and uh, you know, we were able to to apply it and scale it. And that that's the hardest part. Like, how do you take, you, a lot of people can open one great cafe, I think, but how do you do it across multiple markets uh, very quickly? And when you're dealing with a with a, a talent pool uh, and team that often has very high turnover, and how do you make sure that those systems and learnings can can continue on and have continuity? So, you know, what we're trying to do is a very authentic uh, authentic representation of of premium Australian cafe culture. But then this brings the question, which you just kind of asked, like, how do you keep it consistent? How do you make sure that the experience that someone is getting on Greenwich in New York City is the same that someone's getting when they're out in Santa Monica? Therein lies the biggest challenge and I think something that we are working on every single moment. It's it's certainly not easy. And it's not easy when you want to provide a product that's more freshly made. If you look at the big, the, the largest um, QSR and fast casual businesses, 
what they've really perfected is effectively having all of their food and beverage products mass manufactured in co in commissaries and co-manufacturing sort of facilities where it comes in in a frozen state uh, or or it comes in uh, a reconstituted form and uh, it's often so processed that the nutritional value is de minimis high in sugar high in fat and that's how they've been able to scale by reducing the variables and a big part of um, scaling a hospitality brand is reducing the variables regarding the perishability of food which is which is also a real tragedy because people and western society doesn't need more processed food we already have an obesity epidemic and and you know health related externalities and the drain on society is is the number one challenge the western world has uh and you know and it manifests in so many different ways and and impacts not only just life expectancy but living standards and there's there's a lot of sort of further uh, analysis and and segments you can explore there how it disproportionately impacts minority groups and those that have um, less education it's 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 a real sort of it's a real challenge that we've got to address so with us um, we have focused on you know the training the systems the standards who who we look for and how we hire and how we onboard and induct and it's a, a tremendous amount of investment and if you if you want to be a service-led business like like ours really everything comes down to the quality of team and how consistently they can execute your proposition because the intellectual property in in hospitality per se in a, in a very broad general manner is, is quite limited with hospitality, there's not a tremendous amount of intellectual property, right? A lot of people can work out how to make a great coffee, bake a great cake, um, cook a perfect steak. It's not like you're trying to build this revolutionary sort of um, biomedical uh, uh, vaccine or a space shuttle or this once-in-a-lifetime algorithm. It's really about um, EQ. It's about how you work with other people and how you make other people feel fantastic uh, consistently and and you know every time. So for us, like so much of the focus is on having the right team and people who who have that values alignment that they love making people feel great and love being part of a team. And it doesn't matter how great your coffee skills are or or how talented you are with a knife it's it's in the kitchen um it's really about how you can congruently be part of our team and support each other and uh you know and just have those advanced eq skills that are so necessary to provide a service-led proposition and and that is a big challenge but i also think it's truly wonderful because there's so many people out there that that love the, the idea of working with healthy food, uh, premium coffee, daytime, uh, making people feel great and being part of this this cool aspirational brand. And we're just so fortunate that we've continued to attract amazing talent. And, and if anything, COVID has accelerated um, the amount of, amount of talent that's, in, that's interested in being part of our team and getting on the journey. Well, that's what I was going to ask you next is how has this year, which I know has been a year, how has this yep. year really impacted you guys? Because I know I read that that New York Times item and you earlier in the year eliminated 90% of your revenue. Yeah, that's true. It was just, just absolutely heartbreaking. It was staggering, simply staggering. Uh, uh, we're such an urban model. So most of our stores are located in big cities, in um, high-density business districts, and they were the ones that disproportionately impacted. So people worked in office towers, no longer went to work. Uh, there was no business travel. There was no tourism. So, uh, And then we were basically told that you could you could sort of no longer operate. You couldn't serve people. They couldn't sit down. They couldn't sit outside. They couldn't sit inside. And it was still in March, so it was cold out. So people suddenly um, realized that, that they could only sort of order takeaway. And it just changed everything so dramatically. 
And for us, uh, you know, when you've got big operations in New York City and San Francisco and Los Angeles and Washington, D.C., where you're so reliant on people, uh, on this captive audience going to work every day, and when that disappears completely, your revenue is going to evaporate. And it was just such an extraordinary time because no one knew what was going on. No one knew the prevalence of COVID in, in their communities. No one knew how serious it was. Um, our biggest focus was to protect our team at all costs. So closing a lot of our stores just made sense because we we you know we didn't think we'd have a lot of business to justify, but we but we didn't know if it was the right thing for our team. But in saying that, we thought it was absolutely critically essential that we kept as many stores open that we economically viably could. Uh, to preserve jobs and to make sure, and for really three things, to preserve jobs, to connect with our community, uh, and then thirdly, like to be that that um, signal of hope that we're going to get through this and be that, that sense of, of positivity for our locals. Because everyone was tucked up in their apartment and, you know, they're spending every day in there reading the news, just saying that the world's coming to an end. And that there's unfortunately so many people that are getting infected and then a lot were, were, were passing away tragically. We had to be that sort of beacon of hope. And it came back to the real purpose of Bluestone. You know, that we're a human connection company. We're about making people feel special and wonderful and providing them that sense of escape. And we really were focused on breaking that isolation for people. So by keeping the doors open of 14 of our stores out of 51, uh, there was a sense of respite and it enabled us to support a lot of the community initiatives in a huge way. Uh, we did, we launched an initiative to provide coffee for and food for first responders and, and really healthcare heroes. And we called it uh, Fuel for Healthcare Heroes. And we ended up donating uh, over 50,000 coffees. And just, we did it personally too. Like what we did is we facilitated all the drop-offs as a team. So it was such an incredible experience, so engaging and grassroots. I dropped off coffee boxes. My brother who runs marketing, he started the initiative and the first hospital he went to was he went to Elmhurst. In uh, which was basically in New York, which is effectively like right. ground zero. They were having more more deaths um, than any other hospital in the country, and uh, you know that was a really powerful and transformative mo uh, moment for us. Where I think we parked the tragedy that we we're experiencing in our business and how many people that we'd unfortunately had to make redundant because we really had no options. But it gave us that higher purpose and it gave us that grounding and inspiration and motivation and just the feedback when you go to the hospitals and you'd meet the nurses and the doctors and they're just dealing in an environment where they're so exposed and the courage that they're manufacturing every day to go to work to give all of us a chance to and those that we care about a chance to get through this and survive um, was just so inspiring and it, it, it even gives me sort of it gives me it's it's a bit sort of emotional now even talking about it because for as much tragedy and hardship that we were dealing with in in the business it's probably nothing compared to what was going on in those hospitals and also just just the the sacrifice that those healthcare heroes were making what would you say one of the best pieces of advice that you've been offered over the last seven or so years of building this business has been? You've got to lead with optimism and you've got to lead with positivity and hope. And no matter the challenges and how many things are going to go wrong, because that's an absolute given, you're going to be dealing with things that you never thought would be remotely possible, especially if you're in uh, retail, consumer, hospitality, where you employ a lot of, a lot of people. And I think you've got to embody and role model that positivity. You've got to lead with resilience. You've got to lead with courage and conviction because people are looking looking at you for hope and they're looking at you to provide them with that um, affirmation that things are going to be okay, that they're going to have a job, that we're going to continue to grow, that, we're, that the adventure is going to be worth it. And I think the times where I have and role model that effectively or I've been negative and, and down hasn't helped anyone. It hasn't helped me, hasn't helped our team, hasn't helped the business, hasn't helped our, our locals, hasn't helped you know any of the stakeholders. 
So I think that's a really, really important one. And and I've read that in a lot of successful entrepreneurial sort of books and autobiographies where they detail the importance of role modeling, a sense of hope and optimism. And if you think about some of the greatest leaders ever, such as Winston Churchill, just how positive and um, optimistic despite facing existential crisis as it related to World War II, he still projected um, a very calm and rational way to, to focus on uh, you know, things that, that are, are important to look forward to. So I think that's a, that's a huge one. For me to listen to you talking about leading with optimism and being that person that people can turn to and see positivity, I totally recognize the value in that. But I also wonder about the idea of authenticity sometimes. And like, I feel like there might be a fine line of needing to be realistic and upfront with your people, but also wanting to be that cheerleader. Like, how do you know how to straddle that line and when to lean one way or the other? Yeah, so it's it's not sort of something that I've had to grapple with because I I I lead with integrity and authenticity and in, in everything I do. That is my core value as a person. I, I think you need to be real. Your team wants to know the truth, but there's lots of different ways to deliver a tough message or a um, a stark message and still provide. Um, hope and positivity that you're going to tackle the problems and you'll do it to your best of your ability and uh, you're going to do it the right way. You may not get the perfect result, but the process and the integrity in the process is going to be sound. So I think it's a balance. Yeah, I'm not out here, you know, spruiking and and a snake oil salesman. Um, but you know, I think it's really important when when times and the chips are down and times are tough to be incredibly empathetic, to be a really great listener, to be pragmatic and bold, to tackle problems assertively and responsibly. But I do think that people, especially if you're a CEO or founder, they've got on the, they've joined the, the journey, they've got on the bus because of something that you have probably had a profound influence on and, and it's inspired them. And so if the leader suddenly comes out there and says, hey, listen, we're, we're, we're stuffed. I don't know what to do. We're, we're dead man walking. All these problems are insurmountable. You, you're going to erode everything you're about. But all I'm saying is like, just, just think about your messaging and your body language and your role modeling. And sometimes, yeah, you're definitely not going to have any answers. And we didn't have all the answers when this crisis hit our business. But taking the approach that we will work it out together. We will keep our composure. We'll support each other. We'll listen. We'll be empathetic. And we're going to have courage and do it with, with a sense of optimism. We, we'll get through it. And all I know as it relates to our challenges this year, which, which have been at a level that I never thought were even remotely possible, we've got, got through it with that approach. What excites you right now? Well, I listen, I think that COVID has some incredible silver linings and it's given people, uh, a lot of people, a way to reflect on their priorities in life. And I'm excited about a, uh, a world that, that, is, that is more focused on their communities and, and their relationships with those they really care about. And just being, and just in many cases, like distilling a, a, and streamlining what's really important in life and i'm excited about that awakening and and that self and that sort of broader self-awareness and i'm also you know for me it's been incredible like spending so much time with my my two young kids and uh you know it has been truly wonderful to really align my focus or just just awaken the the power of being a parent and and of a, a father and a present father and i think that's been a wonderful thing and i'm excited about you know, the future and the relationships with my kids and my wife and you know i'm excited about the future for bluestone lane i i think that we have actually a, a better business it's a lot smaller business than pre-covid but i do think that we have a better business we we have an incredible team uh, I think we've pivoted really nicely as it relates to 
tech enabling what we needed to do. So I'm, I'm, and I'm really, I'm really excited about the way that our locals have responded to, to the, to us staying open and continuing to invest in our team. And so I'm, I'm feeling that, 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 you know, it couldn't get any worse. So I'm focused on, you know, the upside and I'm focused on life and the prioritization of, of what people think about life to, to be enhanced. I, I do, you know, as an air, probably maybe it's more of a self-reflection of just accumulation and, and just, you know, not really taking any pause moments. Well, people spending a lot of time at home has forced them to pause and reflect. And I think it could be a really great thing for society more, more broadly. I agree. I think uh, this year has had a ton of silver linings and I, don't know exactly, you know, what would have been if things stayed the same, but I do know that what has happened this year has forced me as well to be super introspective and and really evaluate how I'm spending my time and and make the best of it to say the least. It sounds to me like this year and and the hit that that it took on the business was certainly a large hurdle for you for sure. So looking back now on 2020, you have an opportunity to offer yourself one piece of advice looking at this hurdle now. What do you tell yourself? <laughs> uh, it's a really interesting question. I think ultimately, no matter how dark it's been, the sun will come up the next day and, and it'll be all right. And you've still got your health. You've got the most important things. And ultimately, if you have those that, that can still be uh, around you or in contact with you that you feel are going to be there when, when you're on your deathbed or at the most important moments in your life, um, that's a real win. And uh, I think that's brought it home for me that, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of noise and distractions and distortion and, you know, elusive things to chase after in, in life and a lot of comparison. And I, I think ultimately what what COVID has done is said, okay, what do I really, really value and who do I really value? And and you know, I think that's a big one. It's like, okay, cut out all the all the collateral and all of the coulda, woulda, shoulda and all these superficial things and just focus on like who do you who really matters and what really matters um in, in your life and who do you really want to be and and the type of values you want to uphold. And a lot of people spruik that they care, you know, they care about certain values, but do they actually embody them and, and live that way? And uh, I think COVID's given everybody, me included, a chance to really reflect on it and think about, yeah, what is my legacy? Who, what type of husband do I want to be? What type of friend? What type of father? Uh, what type of son? You know, I think that's been a wonderful thing. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly missing my family tremendously uh, in Australia, and the inability to get there has been really hard. Um, and you know, I'm greatly looking forward to the day of uh, going to my uh, local pub in Australia with all my mates and and having plenty of beers and just chatting about life and just sort of finding those those magical moments of of, uh, you know, socialization that, that COVID has really acted to pull people apart. So there's lots to look forward to. And, uh, you know, you just got to keep persevering and trying your best. I know the feeling. I know the feeling. I, I can't wait to openly sit with my friends and loved ones without a care in the world. Also, at a pub. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nick, thank you. Thank, thank you so much for your, your time today. I really do appreciate it. How do the hurdlers keep up with you, Nick? How do they keep up with Bluestone Lane? Give me all of the details. Sure. The best way with Bluestone Lane is on our website, www.bluestonelane.com or our Instagram handle, Bluestone Lane. Uh, me personally, uh, the best channel is actually probably LinkedIn. That's where I, I post most of my sort of thoughts and articles. It's probably where it's easiest to connect with me. And you can find me with uh, Nicholas Stone and you can search for Nicholas Stone Bluestone Lane and, you know, I should magically appear. Um, so, yeah, they're the, they're the ways. <laughs> I've been trying to get into LinkedIn myself. Do you have a hot tip for me on, on something I should be doing here? <laughs> I just start following some people that you think are interesting. And uh, I do I do think the amount of content that comes out of it is quite extraordinary. Like it's a really great learning learning tool. Yes, yeah. there's a lot of 
from self-promotion and, and advertising. But I think you follow some real thought makers, like they, they're very active and they're putting cool stuff up there. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's good to, to, it also has, it links to a lot of great articles that, and, and, um, you know, which I think are valuable. So yeah, I'll just spend a bit of time on it. Spend a bit of time on it. Thank you so much. I am over at hurdle podcast and at Emily, a body, another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time.